to the July episode of our 2022 Bridging the Gaps podcast series, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and EHFF, the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Sean O'Conline, Agustaf Volcheroiv Galeir. For this month's podcast, David Somek, the Network Director of EHFF, who often co-hosts our podcasts, spoke with Caroline White about the close parallels between the quest to transform healthcare and to bring about the well-being economy, and also the challenge of persuading people to change their minds. So, David, delighted to have you for our interview today. You have a background in medicine and you trained as a psychiatrist and worked as a doctor for many years, and then you went into health policy. Could you say a few words about why you're feeling that health needs a rethink and the kind of decisions that you made because of that? But of course, Caroline, thanks. I think the theme for me, what I'd like to talk with you about, is how do you change people's opinions I mean, it's a rather broad thing, but uh, I'll explain how it's specific both to our common interest in the economy and my particular interest in health. So uh, to start with, I want to turn the clock back to something like 2005, when I'd left medicine. I still work part time, but my main hobby and activity was in quality and healthcare. And that's how I met, for instance, our colleague Sean Conlon from FASTA, because he and I used to go to yearly summer meetings about transformation of organizations. And so we both came from a slightly different quality direction that had a lot in common. And indeed, I think Sean was present in one of the meetings I'm going to talk about. So I'm starting a narrative going back to around 2005, when typically after a meeting, we were in a pub or a bar or something, and one of our dear colleagues from Holland, who's very good at this, started drawing on a beer mat. And the diagram he was drawing was about the problem that you can't improve quality in healthcare without involving other major players. And we started to have a dream about how business, education and health could work together in society to improve things. And that was the kind of seed for what's happened since over these quite a lot of years. At that time, I think he and I were on the organising committee of a, an NGO called the European Society for Quality in Healthcare. And we did some work in policy with the commission, but we were a freelance organisation. And what happened was we did manage to do something, I think, significant with the commission about uh, getting patient safety on the agenda for the member states. And it felt like an achievement. But then after a few years, we began to realize that actually, even though the commission was pushing this, everyone had approved it and so on, in reality, things change incredibly slowly. And the problem is that everyone who has been looking at in a more helicopter view about what needs to happen in health, recognize that actually things have to move rather quickly, otherwise we're going to be in a serious problem. And of course we are. <laughs> but, you know, for example, the huge problem about manpower, lack of manpower, and also the rising costs and no one knowing quite how to make that work, never mind other issues which we'll touch on in a minute. So a certain number of years, we decided, okay, this has been a very helpful journey, but actually we need to set up a new organization which works outside the box. And it's, it, we 
put it into place roughly around 2012, something like that. Uh, so, you know, 10 years ago, called the European Health Futures Forum. Now, EHFF, again, it's a charity. In fact, it's now registered in Ireland, thanks to Brexit. We started it in England. And okay. as soon as the vote for Brexit happened, we rushed over to Dublin and said we want to set up a new organisation because we wanted to stay Europeans, for heaven's sake, because sure, we're sure. Europeans through and through. <laughs> so, so we're a charity in Ireland now like faster but um, much younger and the idea was that we would use things like future thinking systems thinking which is something faster members un understand very well as an approach to health because we felt that it wasn't very current in uh, the way people normally thought about health they were very much silo thinking it happened that along the way I flirted with the notion of because again it's one of the future's tools about scenario thinking. And I actually went and studied a bit with a group of experts in Oxford on the application of scenario thinking to, to business reorganization. Now, it's interesting because what scenario thinking is about is essentially it's not telling you what will happen. It's just looking at the options of what might happen and thinking them through. And what the scenarios guy says, it's sort of like, if you think about it, it's like consciousness expanding you know, so that when people are doing business planning, they have their minds more open to options than the normal repeat the old thing but improve it a bit type of thinking. So one of the things about that was there was a particular expert from Holland who'd affected particularly the thinking of Shell, who were one of the leaders in scenario thinking way back um, about how they thought about business planning. And this was a model which looked at the organization and, and the, what they called the transactional space. In other words, the players that they normally worked with and exchanged ideas or had business with and so on, then outside of that was a space that was actually the, where the forces which influenced you, but which you didn't have control over, and this is things like legislation or politics or uh, the environment changing and so on and so forth. And these were things you had to recognize and adapt to, but you couldn't influence. And that this kind of model helped you uh, think more clearly about how you had a strategy for your business. Now, this it's just, again, these ideas kind of coalesced, you know, and... Uh, after a time, we decided that as a futures organization, we should do a proper scenario project. And we, this started about three years ago, two or three years ago, where we actually said, OK, we're going to look at the health ecosystem. So that was a big jump for us. Instead of just thinking about health within the silo, I'd been influenced particularly, as it happens, by chairing a, a working group uh, for another NGO in Europe looking at the thing called the well-being economy. Now, the well-being economy is something which some people may have heard of, but a lot haven't. But it's actually a very clever idea about how you can change the economy. This is something, of course, you, Caroline, are an expert on. It's something you've got an <laughs> abiding interest in, isn't it? And how you change the economy from the profit-driven notion where growth is God, sometimes referred to as it's um, steered by GDP, 
to an economy that actually serves society properly. And these folk who suggest this idea, well, it, was, it was someone who was actually a, an economic advisor to Tony Blair, I think, originally. Very nice guys. In fact, we've interviewed them on a previous uh, podcast a couple of years back. But they said, look, if you think about what society wants and needs from an economy, it's all about the different aspects of society. So the economy has, has impact on the environment, it has impact on education, or it interacts with education, social justice, and uh, there's a couple of other things I can't think of just on the top of my head. But health, obviously, is another one. And what a sensible economy needs to do is look at its potential impact on all of these things as part of economic planning. So instead of simply planning for growth, you plan for outcomes for society that will benefit and which society really wants, rather than a tiny minority to be enriched. So it's, it's not a, a political or socialist notion. In Some people in America, I know, immediately say, oh, you're a socialist, you're communist, or whatever. They, can't, they don't get it. But, you know, it's part of the whole notion of worshipping the golden calf, isn't it? That it's kind of, you're indoctrinated with it. It's very difficult, that. And of course, it actually touches on the very issue that I wanted us to talk about, really, which is how on earth, with people who are so fixed in that view of the world, can you get them to see there's an alternative way of thinking? So anyway, that certainly influenced me a lot. So we, um, when we did the scenario project, it actually was very enriching because we were thinking about, uh, obviously, a, a health ecosystem is indeed exactly the same as with the economy. It's about health is impacted by and, it, and indeed impacts on the environment. Hospitals are not clean animals <laughs> unless they're they really change the way they do things. You have medications polluting the, the rivers and all this sort of thing. So there's that one aspect. Then, of course, there's the aspect of education. It's quite extraordinary. Although we identified health literacy, if you know what that means, which is about people really understanding their own health and being able to be more active in uh, whether they're dealing with illnesses, working with professionals or simply looking, you know, looking after themselves better, recognizing we're talking about a whole lifetime and lifetimes are getting longer by and large. So there's education. And even though we know all of that, that nevertheless, education and health remain is this whole thing about silo thinking. They don't they aren't able to work across the silos easily. Obviously, there's a, there's always super exceptions, but they are very few, fortunately. And you see what I'm getting at. So we constructed a, a scenario model of where we want to get to, you know, to a more ideal health system from where we are now, which clearly is dysfunctional. I don't need to go into this, but I think people recognize there's all kinds of things about the present health system. Although it can be super in some ways, in terms of doing magic things in uh, helping save people's lives when they're terribly ill, actually, it doesn't work that well. It's fixed on a 19th century model, an institutional model in terms of hospitals. It's still very hierarchical and it, we can't afford it, you know, because of the fact that it's very successful in helping to prolong people's lives. 
And we just generally, we're better off, we're healthier, you know, we eat better than we, we did. So we live longer, but that's a cost. Because if you live longer, then there are, you become someone who's a, a burden on the health system because elderly folk like me, you know, have, uh, it's called multimorbidity. I've got two or three things wrong with me. <laughs> Fortunately, I, I'm fairly fit and active, but there are other people my age, if they're still alive, you know, who are requiring a lot of help from the health system and that there's a cost. So it's a real mess. So the idea then is how do you improve it? And what are the ways in which things must change to get to a more ideal system, which is like the idea of the well-being economy actually is more fit for purpose and more meets the needs of society. So what we recognized there was, okay, where do you start? We're a tiny organization. What you, all you can do is to kind of act as a catalyst you know, to help bring about change by working with others. I think that's an essential. And there you begin to see real parallels between what we're trying to do with the well-being economy Irish hub, where FASTA and EHFF and others are working together to try and introduce the concept in Ireland and make it something which can actually influence those with political power. And for us, we began to recognize the central issue is how do you change people's mindsets? How do you help people to get it? Because we're, let's be real about this. People want, inevitably tend to be egocentric. You know, they want to look after their family and themselves. They want to have a good life. And helping in this day and age, wanting to help society, you know, is rather less than it might have been previously. It's something about community and the work uh, with the current economies. People have less of a sense of community. Obviously, it depends where you live. I'm very fortunate. I've retired. I work out of a village on the south coast of, of the UK where you recognize village life and community and the kind of attitudes to each other, which we'd hoped would continue. But in big cities, it's much harder of course, there's that notion of anomie and alienation from people. So it's a major problem. But maybe I've talked, <laughs> I talked enough. Perhaps you could come in and say your take on that very issue, because it's one that you and I have in common in relation to the hub, isn't it? It absolutely is. And it's, it's as you say, I think it's absolutely a central issue. I suppose my take on that is kind of, the, in a way, the old-fashioned Socratic take you know does i think listening to people and asking them questions and really listening to their answers and then asking more questions and listening to the answers is maybe the only way to really communicate meaningfully because otherwise it just ends up into this as you say siloed factional situation where everybody's just sort of defending their own tribe and and not really and feeling very defensive and and not, uh, not really engaging or trying to engage. But more generally, I, of course, I agree that all of these, you know, there's so many different things that are connected in terms of uh, what can bring about a well-being economy and also what can bring about a health system that, that works well. Yeah. There's an obvious, an awful lot of things in common. There's um, a need for a holistic view and to bring everything together, which is very hard to do as well, and to make sure people are able to really understand each other. I think uh, basic understanding is often 
surprisingly lacking. You know, a lot of times people argue about things and they're actually talking about different definitions of the same word without even realizing it a lot of times. I'm absolute uh, enthusiast like you for this whole notion of listening. And, and I think it's recognized by people, futurists, you know, uh, part of the foresight model is the notion of conversations as being important agents for change. But the problem then is how long does it take and how, how, you know, how big a t- target have you got? So there's something about the level at which you operate, isn't it? If you're like we both are passionate about changing society for the better and it's a very humanistic approach, isn't it? Is where's the best point of uh, entry, as it were, to make a, a difference? I, uh, I met a guy, he's written a book about it, who happened to be in the right place at the right time and was in this meeting in South Africa where they got all the players around a campfire sort of thing and they actually talked about uh, you know, the people who traditionally were at each other's throats. They talked about how to improve life in South Africa after the uh, apartheid thing was was over and it was and again it was a kind of scenario exercise but not done in any detail uh, I seem to remember the flamingos one out <laughs> you can go back and read about it. there's a guy called Adam Kahane a K-H-A-N-E and I think it was a wonderful experience where people suddenly realized they didn't have to fight all the time. It's again, I, I talk, remember talking to Alderdice, you know, who had been, he, you know, this guy is, was both the leader of a political party, was also trained as a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. And he gave us an inside view to how the final stages of the negotiation went between behind the scenes you know between Sinn Féin and the and the others and he was saying how extraordinary the amount of fear and anxiety there was and that really it was managing that which helped to bring some kind of reconciliation but the problem is of course how lasting it is and it's the same in South Africa but well, we have to live for the while we can you know in my lifetime certainly I don't have to worry about whether the longer term things, I just want to get something moving and changing. So there are, but again, you see, these are higher level, these are high level negotiators that I'm just describing. What we need to think about is where do you start? If you simply go from house to house, you can do a limited amount. It's about where one of the tricks, I think, and this is a, you know, it's just an aspiration, isn't it? Is how to, and I think we're thinking about that seriously, aren't we, Caroline, in, with the hub? And I'm thinking about with health, too, is how you mobilize people who are very much have the same views of you. There, there are loads and loads of organizations and, and groups out there wanting to change society in ways that have a lot of common threads, even though their goals may be uh, officially distinct. And it's how to mobilize those common threads, isn't it, to get traction, if you like, to get something which will really help to change. I think it's at that level of those groups who can maybe really have an influence. How to do it's another matter. I mean, that's the big challenge, which is, well, we all have a challenge, don't we? But, um, but I do think that's possibly the way forward. There's no magic solution. We have to, we're learning as we go along, isn't it? It's very interesting. There are people who've really thought about how change comes about. But I guess we have to look at 
wherever we can to find examples that help us find the solution for us with the problem we're trying to solve. Yeah, I mean, uh, within the hub, as as you know, we have an interest and in a work focus on changing narrative and trying to build a, a vision of a different economy through the arts. And um, mm -hmm. and that's, uh, again, that's an interesting way to potentially make a, create a bit of momentum, a bit of resonance with other as you say, other groups that have a lot in common with us. And um, as you also mentioned earlier, have developed some kind of vision of where we want to go, which isn't only just reactive and passive, but is actually positive, you know, constructive, thinking about where we actually want to go in the future. So that does seem like a, a really important aspect of the whole thing as well. I do think it's a lovely idea, the creatives one uh, that the Irish have are doing. We haven't yet quite achieved the same notion for health about what we might do that's kind of left field that might try and change people's thinking about health. But I mean, the great thing is um, I'm a great believer in, in network networks and how networks work. And it's about searching in the network for people who've got that knowledge or can inspire you know, i mean i think it's a kind of melting pot of ideas that will throw up something unexpectedly like the cultural creatives which is really innovative i think yeah it is i'm i'm curious about something you said earlier uh, i hope you don't mind if i backtrack slightly um it's just sure. it interests me since i'm not at all a healthcare professional i don't know all that much about the system and you mentioned that the hospital system is based on a 19th century model and it's very hierarchical and so i wondered if you could just elaborate a bit on that it might be obvious to you but to me it's a little bit it's not something i'm as familiar with so maybe no absolutely no look i think the thing is a hospital, having been responsible for running a hospital or, you know, being a senior person involved in that, they are big institutions. You know, there are lots of departments and systems working together and so on. And they usually involve big buildings. And this is a complete anachronism because what it means is when the public think about health, but this is why idiots like Boris Johnson can say, oh, well, we're going to improve health system by making building 24 more new hospitals. And people in the health policy gasp in horror because actually, and the reason for this is it's now recognized that if you think about hospitals as being the pinnacle of the healthcare system, it's not actually the healthcare system, it's the illness care system. And what we recognize is that very much two-thirds of the costs of health are on helping support people with chronic disease. It's not people in hospitals. It's people who are in the community living with their conditions. So to have the focus on these expensive buildings is ludicrous. And they also they don't work very well because they're so complicated. So what um, modern thinking about hospitals is, you deconstruct them. So there are parts of hospitals which have to be highly specialized, very expensive technical, because they do very clever technical things. But they, they can be split off from other things hospitals do, which can be done in the community. I mean, the classic example is how the enormous progress made by introducing flexible cameras 
uh, you know, so that go inside you, you see them and so forth. So that what that meant was you have things like keyhole surgery. Now, what keyhole surgery means, and it's a huge innovation, is that you can do things on a day basis that previously would involve being several days in a hospital. So lots of things. In fact, I, I have a problem with my stomach. You know, I have to every so often I have to have a gastroscope. Now, that doesn't need to be done to a hospital. In fact, it used to be done with an anesthetic and doctors and all this paraphernalia. Now an experienced nurse, you know, a senior experienced practitioner will use the gastroscope, you know. And it could be done anywhere, you know. Well, I mean, not in your back room, but you see what I'm saying? So you deconstruct the big organisation, which after all is extremely expensive to run, you know, and it has all the problems about big buildings, keeping the cockroaches out of the kitchens, the distances people travel and so on and so forth. Again, the, um, the fact that we've had so much progress with technology and uh, electronic communication, there's all kinds of things you can do now which you couldn't uh, when the hospitals were built 200 years ago or the concept was developed. So you see what I, I mean? It's really the the needs can be met substantially less elsewhere. But of course, it involves people changing attitudes, just as we need to help healthcare staff, healthcare professionals change their attitudes. They are changing, of course, especially the younger generations. But for people who were trained at my age and uh, earlier, the idea of their professional status was an incredibly important part. Sure, they, they did genuinely have a vocation, but it was also the prestige they had, you know, being a consultant, you know, with people under you and all that. Whereas my experience is if you have confidence in your knowledge, you don't have to have status as well. Your status is the difference, isn't it, between position power and knowledge power. And that transition hasn't really happened. If you make that transition, then it's much easier to embrace a different view about what healthcare staff might do, which is as health coaches, as opposed to simply angels in white dispensing the medicine from above, you see what I mean? And that's yeah. all part of a parcel, you know? Yeah, that's really fascinating. What it makes me think about is education. I don't know whether you're, mm -hmm. you know, what your feeling is about this, but I mean, the whole movement, for example, for democratic schools and that kind of thing, it has to do with teachers taking a role of coaches and counsellors and, and helping to provide information when it's asked or helping people who are in the schools, like the students, to develop their own passions, their own knowledge, and then join together different things, rather than it being a totally top-down thing where you're supposed to just sit there and ingest knowledge you know at a pace that's determined by somebody else and very passively and then just bring it back out again when you do in your exams or so on so you know it's a much more active engagement and the teachers are more of uh, as i say as like coaches rather than the people who just tell you what to do all the time so i find that interesting as a parallel but i don't know oh, if I, absolutely that it is no i'm well aware of that and indeed i talk to educationists inevitably as well and particularly innovators. And of course, uh, again, there's the same problem of trying to get the big universities or institutions like any others, and they don't want to change. <laughs> you know? And the, the same issues arise, absolutely. And that's why it's so important, isn't it, to, to try and 
loosen the uh, boundaries between signers so there can be mutual learning. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's just so, so enriching and so important, as you say. That was David Solnick, Network Director of the European Health Futures Forum, speaking with Caroline White. Many thanks to David for his participation and to Nisha Kelly for her music on the harp. If you enjoyed this podcast, please link to it on social media and spread the word. And please tune in next month.